and I would just like to say as a little up on top, um, we've gotten a lot of, I would say the number one comment I get is this show is so funny. You're both so gorgeous and perfect. And I can't wait till you're famous and it's going to be amazing. By like a long shot, I get like thousands of those every week. But then the second comment mm-hmm. that I get the most is like, what does Eva mean when she says she doesn't believe in science? <laughs> Oh, God. I wish I had an answer for you because I really do. um, I love and cherish and respect everyone who sets out the course of their life to be about discovering things about the world around them, um, about people, about nature, um, fixing problems, learning more about like what it is to be alive um, and what it means to exist in this world and, and how that's happening. I have all the respect in the world for those people. The academic institution of and and sort of like cultural hegemony of like deciding what is and isn't true and uh, therefore who is and isn't like valid based on where where you align with those things that they've decided are true. I don't support it and I don't believe in it. Um, and I I'm very experientially oriented. So. Um, and I think that it, the orientation towards experiential knowledge uh, has been very, like, derided by science. I hope I'm using that correctly, that verb. So. But, like, yeah, it's been very it's, – it's, like, held in a lot of disdain, you know, as being, like, simpler or stupid or something. And I just really don't think that's true. Like, I don't think I'm stupid for wanting to experience something to know it's true. Definitely um, not. So that's that's where I'm coming from when I mean I don't believe in science. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't think there are such things as chemicals and chemical reactions. Um, in fact, you have been a star in every science class I've ever needed to take. Good. That's actually true, just for I know. the record. <laughs> I believe me. I, this podcast um, is f- I did a, facts, actually a publication of facts. Come loudy. I was so. trying to set you up for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'm like back here drawing a big sign. Like we're on Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. I've got like C blank, M, L blank. Can you, I'm going to edit in the loudest fucking air horn sound. Can you just, can I just get a really clean take of you saying I graduated cum laude? I graduated cum laude from Columbia University. <laughs> Wait, did you hear her? So I'm really excited for this week's episode. Yes, me too. I'm literally so so excited. Yeah, this week we're going to conclude our little like science arc by talking about two moments in time. (laughs) Two moments in (laughs) history and culture. Heavy scare quotes. (laughs) Yeah, two moments in history and culture where um, uh, prominent scientific experts uh have spent some time debunking or exploring the scientific arguments against the reality of ghosts um so one of those happened go ahead sorry no what i was gonna say this is our science versus episode Yes, this is our science versus episode. Um, so we're going to co- like, not like compare and contrast to these two times, but like just, you know, sort of talk about like what's changed and stuff because, and what's interesting about it is like the first sort of concentration of 
efforts to debunk um, the supernatural was really in the early 20th century. And because there, we've talked about it before, but like science was the paranormal for a long time. And it's hard to believe that now because they're so, they feel so opposite and so opposing. Um, but science had a bad reputation for a long time. And science as we know it, not literally the pursuit of knowledge. Obviously, everyone wanted to pursue knowledge. But um, yeah, like scientific research and scientific method had a pretty bad reputation for a long time. And yeah. spiritualism and other forms of uh, like non-homogenous spirituality were much more popular and and respected i don't know how else to phrase it but yeah, yeah. you would trust your priest way more than you'd trust a doctor doctors were absolutely. considered quacks yeah absolutely absolutely that's a great way of putting it so so there's really no like doctors versus ghosts up until like the 30s um is really when they started being able to like or being interested in investigating whether or not um these things were frauds or whether or not they were true um and then the more recent one we're going to talk about is super contemporary um and i'll try to maintain a cool head because <laughs> i actually devote a good amount of my free time to cyberbullying this uh physics professor on twitter <laughs> so Which... like i can't say i'm not biased i like i i actively try to make his life harder when I can. <laughs> Which that that is not uh, our views do not reflect the views of Barnard College or any affiliated institutions. But if I could, I would. You know what I mean. If I could get that view reflected by the general community, yeah. I would. Yeah, I'm actively advocating for it. Like I, I the last few episodes, I've really been telling you other perspectives, and today I. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold back a little because I don't actually want the FBI to come to my house but I'm, I'm gonna hold back less with my opinions okay so ectoplasm let's talk about ectoplasm let's start there so ectoplasm the term was originally coined actually by Charles Liché I just had to look at my note because I forgot his first name um who is actually a noble a Nobel Prize winner for something completely unrelated. He did like really important research into allergies and um, like the physiological um, experience of anaphylaxis. And the kidney. And the kidney. So he's actually like, uh, again, w when we talk about this sort of era, like there is a, this is still while science is dividing from spirituality. Um, so he coined the term ectoplasm to talk about anything that is exteriorized during spiritual practice. Um, so we think of it usually as like the slime from Ghostbusters, um, but it's any material that is produced usually from a medium, a, spir a spiritual or psychic medium during um, like a supernatural experience. Yeah. So Riche was, I, I bring him up and I bring ectoplasm up first because I think that he is a really, as you are saying, a good exemplar of where science and spiritualism, but also spirituality um, crossed and diverged at the time. So he lived from 1850 to 1935. So this is, that's the time period we're talking about. We're talking about late 19th, early 20th century. He was French. Um, and he 
was simultaneously a very respected, decorated scientist, though, of Mm -hmm. course, there were people who ridiculed him for spiritual beliefs, but he was also at the same time highly devoted to the study of the paranormal and to spiritualism and spiritualist phenomena. So spiritualism, Mm -hmm. the way we talk about spiritualism now, and we use the word is like plants, yoga, crystals, doing mushrooms (laughs) on the weekend, whatever. Like the word has taken on a meaning that is in opposition to religion, but is, but you know, has to do with the afterlife and non-scientific beliefs. But at the time, spiritualism was a religious belief and it was, uh, it would, it took on a whole, I mean, I hesitate to call it cultish, but it was a religious practice that while it went hand in hand with Christianity for a lot of these people diverged in some significant ways. Does that seem fair? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was it was all based on communicating with spirits, which exactly. was like sort of where. And I um, I wish I knew more about the history of Christianity, but people who know about the history of Christianity know that this is also a period of time where, um, practices of like churches and priests start to sort of split. Um, because some people really think that communicating with spirits is pagan and does not really adhere to the christian canon while others are deeply uh, other christian communities are deeply concerned with communicating with the dead yeah so actually one of the things that i found in my research that was interesting um i read an article or a paper rather talking about how the victorian age was an age of incredible scientific discovery and also extreme religious uncertainty. I think a lot of people attribute mm-hmm. this to Darwin and his discoveries, but, mm-hmm. um, or his theories, but I think it's, it goes a lot deeper than that. I, it's beyond the scope of this podcast to give a full background on religious upheaval in the Victorian period, mm-hmm. but we wish we could, We'd we wish we could, to you. but here's a very, very bastardized brief summary. Darwin and the people surrounding him, obviously evolution and the idea that there is a natural order which deviates from God's plan or which operates on its own, regardless of how God may have set things into motion originally. I mean, I think Darwin was religious, but regardless, that those call into question age-old religious narratives that man created humankind to have dominion over animals and that animals were formed exactly as they are. The idea that there is this evolved, you know, this evolution narrative really calls into question a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um And at the same time, in addition to that, and on top of that, now there is this growth of the scientific method and science, which is a fundamentally empirical practice. There's a huge amount of funding, a huge amount of time, a huge amount of energy devoted to examining all aspects of life through a scientific lens. So this is Mm -hmm. like, how does everything work? That's what what Mm -hmm. we're asking now. It's not just Mm -hmm. like... Now we have these incredibly um, specific, almost siloed fields of scientific study, where if you mm-hmm. are going to be a particle physicist, you're a particle physicist, and that's the track that you're on, you go towards that. Obviously, mm-hmm. that happens over time. You don't start in high school knowing you're going to be a particle physicist. But this was a time when, I mean, you read the description of these people who are big, a big deal in the spiritualist community, and they're like discovered kidney stones was an orphan discovered that horses are animals like (laughs) (laughs) invented pancakes like it's like people who were the idea of the um these like gentlemen scholars exactly these like jack of all trades uh 
scientific discoverers because they were just taking the scientific method and experimenting and also their money and their education, which was confined to the noble classes and applying it to everything. And one thing Mm -hmm. they applied it to significantly was ghosts and spirits. And as you Mm -hmm. say, communicating with them. Yeah. So around this time, um, traveling performance was still very popular um, because this is, I mean, you know, Hollywood is on its way to being accessible to a lot of people, but I mean, it's still film. It's still screening the silver screen. Um, These are not, you know, there's not an AMC in every town. So there's still a lot of traveling performers going on vaudeville escape artists and the like magicians and so one of them that's really common and actually was uh heavily female was these practices of mediums and seances where they would have these um you know these darkened rooms and it's a woman in dark robes sitting on like just a little wooden chair with chair um with one like bare bulb hanging from the ceiling um and uh she or sometimes a uh, there was a partner or an assistant would perform these seances um these like medium performances where they were contacting spirits um and if you've ever seen the show long island medium she takes all her tricks from these people um And there was a lot of concern in the scientific world about these being fraudulent um, and whether or not these mediums were actually uh, connecting with the spirit world and learning things about people or whether they were using other, um, like, quote unquote, physical means of um, deceiving the audience, which this has to be the golden era of American frauds, right? Truly. Like, hello? Snake oil, baby. Snake oil. Yes, exactly. This is traveling salesman era. So these mediums uh, and these spiritualists were, in some of them, in their own ways, they were celebrities. Like, Mm -hmm. these performances were not corner store. I mean, some of them were, but they were not like the psychic that you go to around the corner and take disposable camera photos outside of their neon sign. Like, Mm -hmm these people were a big deal and they were considered credible by some of the most important scientific minds of their day. Yes. But that's not to say that science generally believed in spiritualism or in mediumship. It's that there was one school or, I mean, a group of thinkers and mm-hmm. scientists and spiritualists who truly believed that these mediums and these occult acts were real. I mean, it's hard, mm-hmm. it's hard to assign truth value to anyone's beliefs even in the moment. So it's really hard to look back through history and say whether they truly believed it or not, but they wrote and Mm -hmm. acted as though they believed it. Like Mm -hmm. they were trying to create the belief in the world that it was real. And the reason that I wanted to start with Riche, the guy who created the term ectoplasm is because he had a really interesting approach to mediums and spiritualism that I think sums up a lot of what was happening in this Victorian and post-Victorian era, which is he truly believed that there was a physical explanation for paranormal phenomena. Mm -hmm. That's what he was trying to prove. He wasn't Mm -hmm. saying what you hear a lot now, which is scientific thought has just not yet caught up to ghosts, but it may never. There are just things which are inexplicable. He was saying Mm -hmm. there are... I'll read you a quote of his. 
It has been shown that as regards subjective metaphysics, the simplest and most rational explanation is to suppose the existence of a faculty of supernormal cognition, setting in motion the human intelligence by certain vibrations that do not move the normal senses. So that's like ectoplasm, right? He believed that there were things happening, physical things happening that allowed these people to speak with the dead. It wasn't that mm -hmm. he thought that we just couldn't possibly figure it out. He thought he was on the verge of understanding it. Mm -hmm. I read his book, which is called Metaphysical Phenomena, which he wrote, or he wrote the intro to it, but I read like parts of what he wrote on. And I'm going to read you a section that I thought was absolutely fascinating and completely illuminating. Mm -hmm. This book is written in 1905. It's published in 1905. Okay. Who then will be so rash as to say that the treaties on physics in 2005 will but repeat what is to be found in the treaties of 1905? The probability, the certainty one might say, is that new scientific data will shortly spring up out of the darkness and that most powerful and altogether unknown forces will be revealed. Our great-grandchildren, that's us, will be amazed at the blindness of our savants who tacitly profess the immobility of science. We live in the midst of phenomena and have no adequate knowledge of any one of them. Even the simplest phenomenon is the most mysterious. What does the combination of hydrogen with oxygen mean? Who has even once been thoroughly able to understand the word combination, annihilation of the properties of two bodies by the creation of a third body differing from the two first? How is it that we are to understand that an atom is individual indivisible, it is constituted of a particulate of matter, yet even in thought, it cannot be divided. So here he's talking about how scientific thought has not yet caught up to theories of the atom, mm -hmm. which- Which was true. Which is true. But like three years before he wrote this, the cubicle model, which is considered one of the first, I mean, it's no longer considered accurate, but like one of the first semi-accurate models of the atom is proposed. Then- mm -hmm the plum pudding model after that, then the Rutherford model, then the Rutherford Bohr model. Like you we're getting models of the atom every time. At this time. <laughs> right. And yeah. like the discovery of the electron happened in 1897. So in this guy's lifetime. Yeah. So like this is a time in which all the precepts of science that we now think of as completely intelligible and modern that you learn in high school yeah. Yeah. are – I mean, none of those are not even the up-to-date like scientific models because yeah. Einstein changed everything, right? But like, yeah, this is a time at which those things are happening at such a rate and in such an exciting manner. And when anybody can kind of get in on it, anybody who has the right education and the right amount of money, that mm -hmm. if you are somebody who believes in ghosts and spirits, throwing your hat in the ring to try and defend that and to try and make that intelligible to people and to try and sci find scientific proof of that is actually kind of a normal pursuit, even though some people laugh at you and don't believe you. Those people are in opposition mm -hmm. to you in a high profile, normal way. Like there are whole societies mm -hmm. at Cambridge with funding devoted to this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, so some of the many things that are interesting about that, um, that I'd love to just highlight is, um, First of all, is it obvious that I like him? I do, okay? Just going to be transparent about that. Um, I enjoy his like writing. A, yeah. um, he seems like a chill-ass dude. Like, is he right about everything? No. But, well, like, he do, was, I, do I enjoy his writing? Yes. He was really into eugenics, so we should just – I yeah, don't so, like, appreciate that yeah, aspect of him. 
<laughs> yeah, okay, that's true. Okay, yep, very fair. Let's put that out there. <laughs> he was really into eugenics. Hard to avoid in scientific theory at this time, um, which isn't an excuse for believing it. Don't believe it. Just, just, um, just know that before you go read his stuff. Um, so he talks about like a vibration or a force that might be happening that yes. uh, we have yet to even understand. Um, and I just want to sort of circle that back to um, we talked about that in our last two episodes. We talked about that in parallel universes with the idea that there might be something smaller than a light year, you know, like or, or faster than light um, a vibration we're not understanding. And in the wraparound universe theory, when we talk about sort of perceiving things several times in a row like that, um, that might be happening on a wavelength uh, that isn't light. Um, right just to help make some of that old episodes relevant but you know so he's he's on a he's on a line with that that continues to be sort of a a perplexing thing throughout um throughout the scientific consideration of the supernatural and it's going to come up again when we talk about the most recent one um and also just in terms of anthropology this is if we talk about i mean charles Rocher is not american he's french english um yeah. But if we if we think about this in the American context, which is uh, more our scope uh, in terms of media traveling mediums and, and this idea that you could be if you had the education and if you had the money, you could be throwing your hat in the ring of scientific discovery and discovering an electron, discovering a new piece of, you know, the puzzle of what is matter. This is right on the heels of manifest destiny mm-hmm. and um manifest destiny and the gold rush mm-hmm. so if if you're not I'm not in like a condescending way but like if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the idea of like anyone could just be a particle physicist it's like think about how everyone was feeling at the time which was that anyone could just come to america anyone could just become rich off of pan and gold anyone could i mean are these things true not really like but that's the that's the energy in the air well, yeah. And I think that part of what's, I mean, Manifest Destiny gets referenced a lot. Manifest Destiny being the idea that God put, I mean, the most <laughs> simplified racist version is that man put, or God put white men on earth to conquer the world and that anything mm-hmm. they see is, they're entitled to. Yeah. Right. That like the new world is yours to conquer, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the old world exists as a point from which we go out and we take what we want. And that that is mm-hmm. what God put us on earth to do, that mm-hmm. that is our destiny. And while that obviously is tied into a lot of economic systems and was used to justify a lot of things, I think that in terms of the, as you're saying, the kind of psychology and anthropological cultural ramifications of that at the time is that if you believed that you had a good working brain and you had a good interest and you had money in an estate, it was your destiny. You were entitled to go out and to unlock a piece of the puzzle, to understand something in the world, to mm-hmm. help create more knowledge that could be of value mm-hmm. in terms of what people were doing in the world. And this mediumship and seances are a really interesting part of that because there was also a huge number of people and a huge body of scientists who firmly did not believe this was true and spent all Mm -hmm. of their time debunking it. And they would, of time, they would Mm -hmm. pay for reporters 
to come with them to seances and then they would unmask them in front of the reporters and the reporters mm-hmm. would report on it. So this was like, we've got original like tabloid culture here. Like gotcha this is journalism. gotcha mm-hmm. journalism. And, you know, the mediumship had, there were all kinds of, the photos are hysterical. You should absolutely the look up debunking hysterical. medium photos. It's like, because this the is ectoplasm like- ectoplasm photos of Annie C, whatever her name is. The ectoplasm AC. photos. Because these mm-hmm. women- Ectoplasm was considered a physical medium through which ghost wavelengths could travel, right? Like, mm-hmm. keep that in mind. That's what ectoplasm, that's that's what we're imagining is happening, that the unexplained mm-hmm. thing in science is that mediums are psychic people who can, from their own bodies, create a medium from which mm-hmm. they speak to spirits. That's like, mm-hmm. that's what we think ectoplasm is. So these women have to find a way <laughs> in their seances to create a physical substance through which they're speaking to ghosts. So mm-hmm. they would like swallow cheesecloths and raw eggs and then like spit it up at the table and mm-hmm. like, you know, their assistants would like scatter sawdust and like, I mean, it was just like truly mm-hmm. like proto special effects hilarious. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because these are people who don't have s- cell phone cameras, like they don't know what it's going to look like on camera. The photos that the journalists take are hysterical. Like you're like, how could you ever have thought this would work? But these people have not mm-hmm. taken photos of themselves before. Like they're not, you know, they don't know. So we're having this incredible moment where technology and science and spiritual practice are and commerce, like journalism and mass, mm-hmm. um, mass, uh, you know, what's it called when you can read? Not legibility. Uh, dissemination availability. No, 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 like when everybody can read. Oh, literacy. Yes. Mass literacy. Those oh, things true. are all. That's a really important thing to point out. They're all <laughs> hitting each other at the same time, where like more and more people yeah. are reading the newspaper for entertainment yeah. and interests, and more and more spiritualists and mediums are trying to get in on making money from rich yeah. people who want to talk to their dead pets or like dead husbands. Yes. Yes. And more and more scientists want to prove that actually they're not crazy and ghosts are real. And more and more journalists want scoops. So we've got this kind of cascading effect where everyone mm-hmm. is hitting each other and colliding in this totally fascinating mm-hmm. way around debunking ghosts including uh speaking of mass literacy and then the cultural effects thereof sir arthur conan doyle famously was a believer in the um i can't remember exactly what he said um but he 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 and a colleague uh even had physical contact with ectoplasm um exteriorized by one of these mediums um it's helpful that medium in the sense of uh, psychic has a different plural than medium in the sense of tabloids because it's the mediums and the media. But um, Literally. he yeah, he and a colleague actually touched some um, ectoplasm that was exteriorized by a medium. And, um, and their experience of it was that it was reactive um, and, and felt sensitive to touch uh, in the way of a living thing. I mean, a lot of people characterized it, including him, as sort of like um, like when you touch a snail or something or like a, any kind of shellfish and they like retract mm-hmm. and then they sort of slowly creep back out when they feel like they're not going to be bothered by you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're to touch them or cast a shadow on them, um, they would retreat again. And, and this was a big... Um, 
the reaction of ectoplasm to exterior stimuli was um, um, an excellent straw man for fraud mediums to hide behind because they also often claimed that uh, ectoplasm would uh, deteriorate to the point of disintegration when exposed to light. So that was how they were able to control the environment that they performed these uh, seances um, in which to just make them very effing dark so that you mm-hmm. could not possibly see the tricks that they were pulling. And those tricks included, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say these mediums were real. Like, I believe in the supernatural, but you know what I mean? Not every time. So uh, like some of the tricks would be, you know, they have assistants who, who pickpocket the audience to learn things about them um, or who are able to research them ahead of time or even like break into their homes while they're in the audience. And the seance is do- the, the medium is doing this like long drawn out introduction. Um, and then at some point during it, the assistant is able to communicate these things that they've learned um from quite literally breaking and entering because some of these audience members are very famous. Mm-hmm. Like you said, this is not necessarily just some some woman on the corner with a soapbox. This is, uh, I mean, royalty, celebrity, like the, they were very, um, I'm trying to think of something comparable today. Dude, Abe Lincoln, I guess Abe Lincoln had a seance like, in the White House. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I guess today it would be like when you see like Jeffree Star and Kim Kardashian have like a whole masseuse that comes to their house and like does acupuncture at their house. Like that's I think it's the like Scientology vibes. Yeah, Scientology vibes. Thank you. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not, I don't think that it mirrors Scientology and that it's not a wackadoodle predatory scheme to keep people yeah, trapped in debt forever. Yeah. But I think that it, it resembles Scientology and that elites were just really into it. Yeah. Yeah, elites were just really into it, and that was what made people who weren't elite into it. It wasn't necessarily like a grassroots movement. Sir Arthur um, Conan Doyle described ectoplasm as a viscous, gelatinous substance which appeared to differ from every known form of matter and that it could solidify and be used for material purposes. Oh, and that's important to point out. Let's continue in our talk of scientists who were super into ectoplasm, um, and we can talk about Hold on, I have to look at my notes because I have a hard time pronouncing this man's name. He's German. Maybe. Um, Albert Freiherr von Schrenk Notzing. Yes. Also known as the laughing stock of the scientific community. Yeah. Um, this is a little later. This is getting into the, like 30s, 40s, 50s. Um not quite into the 50s, but so so what Gus just described, um, Arthur Conan Doyle saying was a very common idea of something called ideoplasty. I might be pronouncing that wrong, ideoplasty, which is the idea that um, a medium has the ability, uh, natural or supernatural, to create things from the ectoplasm using their mind. Mm-hmm. So this is a psychokinetic function. Um Psychokinesis is explained on episode nine. Just, I well, can't even remember what episode it is. Psychokinesis, um, but yeah, is we do talk. Time what loops. That? Time loops. Okay. So, um, so, so, uh, Schrenk, von Schrenk Notzing, we'll just call him von Schrenk Notzing. <laughs> it's hard to abbreviate a German name because you just end up with four names anyway. Um, von Schrenk Notzing, um, actually performed some like quote unquote scientific like cell biology tests on um i'm not sure exactly what his methods were on some ectoplasmic goo that he was able to obtain a sample of um and he determined it to be 
He determined it to be um, like sort of a collection of epithelial cells um, in like a mucus-like substance. So he found nuclei. He found um, whatever the heck the cell wall is made of that I can never remember cellulose um like uh these other things that were like not quite an animal cell and not quite a plant cell um but definitely characteristics of cells in a in an organic excretion um which was in fact egg whites right <laughs> <laughs> largely egg whites and chewed paper that was it egg whites muslin and chewed paper are, are the very common um physical makeup of these of these fraudulent ectoplasms so yeah you can make some yourself so you definitely can in water <laughs> you should even send you know tweet your pictures at us um yeah but I, I i mean i just feel like what is interesting to take away from this is mm-hmm. he was the laughing stock of the scientific community because he claimed time and time again that this was real and did scientific mm-hmm. research time and time again to prove that it was real and every mm-hmm. time someone else would come and debunk his claims with increasingly honestly hilarious debunkings like yeah like that's he would egg say whites. yeah it's egg whites and it is hilarious <laughs> and a lot of people yeah. i think part of the reason that these people were both believed by some and ridiculed by others is due to there, there was a personality factor because these people all knew each other yes. and there was sort of a wide, a high profile for a lot of them. Yes. It was the credulous that were yes. mocked. There was a posture of belief and sincerity and a professed belief in skeptical thinking and skepticism, like a professed belief that like, look, we're not trying to undo science. We're trying to use the science to understand this. If it's real, science mm-hmm. will prove it. Like that's the professed mm-hmm. understanding. But some of these people, like Varen Von Varen, um, who you just mentioned, what was his name? <laughs> Von Schrenknotzing. Von Schrenknotzing, like him. Increasingly, he does these experiments and they get disproved and he increasingly does them and they get disproved. Like there's an element of being really credulous that I think other scientists Mm -hmm. mocked. And in that we see the grains of the beginning of the posture that we will talk about after the break that modern scientists take about debunking. Modern scientists take. And in fact, up through the 50s, the International Institute of Metaphysics, they were uh, covering up the work that von Schrenk-Notzing had done on the paranormal because as the shame grew to be so, I mean, we, we, you know, people say like, oh, sign, like remain curious. We're not a hundred percent sure. Like, but there's also this very much darker side, which we'll talk about of like, just (laughs) shitting on people who believe in things. Um, yeah, so the the institute that he was funded by, that he worked for, that he submitted papers to, some of which were fully accepted, ones that weren't about the paranormal, um, was covering up the other work that he had done because, and, and that was sort of, I think that's emblematic of the beginning of this transition from the jack-of-all-trades scientist where you could be throwing all this spaghetti at the wall and and have these amazing discoveries that do stick and, and a lot of stuff that is falls by the wayside into today where that's not nearly as accepted. The last thing I want to say about the the ectoplasm thing is uh, that a lot of um, written speculation about what went on during that time also has to do with sort of the rise of 
the rise of gynecology as a field. Um, this is like one of the first times that science really comes up against the reality of the female anatomy. Um, which isn't to say that the female anatomy wasn't a massive focus of science and culture for hundreds of years, but to say that um, actual dissections and actual medical procedures um, and the beginning of what we know as gynecology today and obstetrics was on the rise during this time pretty significantly. So it's just something to also note as, you know, a parallel interest in in the things that are excreted from a woman's body because these mediums um, were usually female and a lot of the times these these fraudulent ectoplas- ectoplasms that they were excreting were like balls of muslin that were inside their vagina that they were like birthing um, in these seances. So just that's a little... That's a very interesting point. I had not even thought about that, but I, that's... Just a little food for thought about that. Dude, hysteria. This was the time totally. of his female hysteria. And what totally. is hysteria if not collapsing and speaking to ghosts? It's not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said about hysteria and ghosts, and, and, and this isn't... This episode doesn't have enough time for it, but just a little... To take with you. And we do our arc about ghosts that are also women. We'll get to that. And therefore, they are feminist. So I think that part, you know, this is obviously not a comprehensive summary of everything that happened with ghosts in the Victorian period, but I think we're focusing on what we're focusing on precisely because, one, it lends an interesting flavor to what we think of as skepticism, but also it gives us a really nice comparison point for modern anti ghost scientific sentiment which i would love if you were to get into my engine's just revving up gus can see that one of my hoofs is pawing at the dirt literally <laughs> I'm full lightning mcqueen in here um Little nice. my ears have gone flat your pupils are Allow like slits <laughs> yeah exactly my my uh interior eyelid has gone horizontally across my eye <laughs> i'm ready for battle like a shark okay so in this in this contemporary more contemporary conversation um the characters have not really changed that much at all even though it's almost 100 years later or over 100 years later depending on who you're talking about there are still celebrity ghost adventurers and we're not gonna talk too much about ghost adventures but one of the men that's featured on that show the one called nick um is quoted in i think the huffington post in 2017 or so as uh talking about this thing that um contemporary paranormalists bring up a lot which is einstein's theory that energy or whatever you want to call it Einstein's theory that energy cannot be created or destroyed right it it just transfers so really quick energy is a is not an something you can hold um we're we're going to talk about science so let's define energy really quick it's not like um it's not an object it's an it's a property of matter so so the The commonly accepted definition is energy is a property of matter that is used to do work on a system. So it's not something you can just hold, right? But um, so this guy, Nick, 
he talked about this in the Huffington Post, and, and it's a line you hear a lot, where he said that Einstein said that energy can't be created or destroyed. So when a person dies, where does the electrical energy, the kinetic energy, the potential energy that's stored within that person go? Um, and, and that's sort of like a a reach around that paranormalists use to, to say, like, they must be, like, that it's possible that spirit, spiritual energy is, is um, uh, put forth from that. Um, but then let's get into the physics arguments as to why that that's not possible. So uh, first of all, where does that energy go? Into the environment, just right. like any other exchange ever. So, duh, like, that's kind of stupid. Right, the um, body is not a closed system. Exactly. Exactly. The body's not a closed system. The energy exits the body as thermal energy, as all these other things, right? You shit your pants when you die. That's what happens. That's where it goes. (laughs) Sorry. And that's where all the energy goes. That's where the ghost energy Um, goes. Yeah. And and then just like turning off a light switch when the source of the electrical energy stops, the, the energy stops. So it's not like your body keeps manufacturing energy, which then keeps your spirit alive. That's not what's happening. But there are some, you know, celebrity paranormalists that say that. So then right. um, so then another issue that comes up with ghosts and energy in the physical world is um, if ghosts are indeed exerting energy on the world around them and, and, and we can see that to be true because every time we experience a ghost, uh, like symptom or a haunting, right? We can assume that energy is being enacted on a door for it to slam. Um, energy is being enacted in order for a ghost to speak, right? Energy right. is needed to, for, for all of these f- things to happen. But where would that energy come from, right? right? So in that model, a ghost would have a finite amount of energy, which then slowly declines over all the times that it uses energy to slam a door or do whatever ghosts are doing or walk somewhere um so so that's an issue hold on sorry let me think for a second so that's an issue that physics poses to contemporary paranormalists and contemporary paranormalists sometimes answer well ghosts use heat energy so um one of the common symptoms of a haunting right is is cold spots yeah yeah so um so some paranormalists might say that this is because ghosts are somehow sapping heat energy from the environment around them and converting it or otherwise exerting it um, right. for their own purposes. Physicists would then say back to that, um, that Newton's zero – hold on, I might be wrong. Not zero, it's not Newton's, but it is the zeroth law of uh, thermodynamics, which is that heat can't be – pulled or pushed it only moves from a hot object to a cold object to achieve equilibrium I that's the zero flaw oh my god like yeah. when you dump a single cup of water when you jump a hot glass of water into the lake that's what we that was the example we always did in physics always my physics teacher was like let's say you're at lake washington and you have a cup of soup and you dump it in which direction is the heat move <laughs> That. that's awesome yeah. i hope that's not a, a cup of soup yeah dude he could ours guess. is always an ice cube on on paper um uh <laughs> some sad massachusetts shit but um what you guys yeah, don't so have exactly. water so the the law the zero flaw the law of thermodynamic equilibrium equilibrium would tell us if we believe that law that um it's not science. possible for a ghost to be sucking heat energy in unless the ghost is much much 
colder than the air. And in that case, that heat energy, all it would do would be achieve equilibrium between the ghost and its environment. It wouldn't give the ghost energy to go do something. Right. The, the change in temperature does not pow power or fuel the ghost. Even if exactly. a ghost exists and it is changing the temperature, it's changing the temperature to reach equilibrium, not like to, sh to do a, you know, a freeze ray. Yeah, it's not exactly. It's not eating the heat, which it then can use to walk around. Right. So this now we're going to talk ice about ice type Pokemon. Yeah. Um, let's talk about now we're going to get into actually Newton's laws. Let's so these are it. some other laws of physics. So the first one would say. Uh oh, I had a moment. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is the law that uh, I think of as the law of inertia. So it's like an object is always going to continue in a straight line or remain at rest until it's acted upon by another force. So how then are ghosts able to walk down a hallway, right? That would imply that there's a force that is moving the ghost. So either that's something behind the ghost pushing it forward, like you like you push a stone on a curling rink is the first thing that came to mind, but like, you know, like you push anything. Um, or that the ghost is walking the way that we walk and the way that we walk is, I can't remember which law this is, but uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Mm -hmm. So we push our foot against the floor, which causes the opposite action, reaction, whatever the fuck, that's how we walk, right? It propels us forward. So if a ghost is able to exert force on the floor, first of all, where is that energy coming from? We right. still haven't answered that question. And then second of all, how is it the ghost then able to selectively not exert force or interact with an object? So if a ghost walks through a wall, for right. example, how is it that it's pushing off the floor but not pushing off the wall. That is right. the question that will plague us forever. Right. Because we are, it is the elastic energy in our muscles that allow us to push off and it's, it's gravity that we're pushing against. Right. So as mm -hmm. we push on the floor, an equal amount pushes us up and that's what we walk. That's walking. No. Yeah. Pushing against the floor, not gravity, but yeah. Right. I mean, the gravitational pull is affecting us and is what keeps us that's anchored, true. but it's yes. the floor itself that we're pushing against. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and like a bird, for example, which does float, is actually flying. It's using its wings. It's pushing yeah. against the air. And it's the air mm -hmm. that it's applying force against and it's pushing it back up. Mm -hmm. Whereas a ghost, as you said, how can it be moving through some things and not others? Right. And, and so then we reach a question of phasing. So I want to say really quick before we move past the image of a ghost walking down the hallway, I want to pose per our previous conversations that it is possible that that ghost is moving along in another plane and we are witnessing it in our mm -hmm. plane or we are witnessing it in our dimension or we are witnessing it in our universe. But that does not mean that physically it's pushing against the floor in our universe. Right. It's just that we're perceiving it in our universe. That's what I want to say first to that. Right. And that's what we've been that's, talking about the past two episodes. Exactly. That's my answer to that question. Um, not always, but that's an answer to that question. So then we have the issues of phasing. So phasing is often is a term that's often used to express the idea of being able to change the phase that your atoms are in in order to move through a solid 
object, right? Like this wall, this theoretical wall that we're all picturing right now. Um, there is something called the, I believe it's pronounced Pauli exclusion principle. I can't remember if that's P-O-W-L-E-Y or if that's P-A-U-L-I or like, I don't know where it comes from. The Pauli exclusion principle is basically the physical law that says that you can't two things can't be in one space at once. Um, it involves like quantum dimensions and like four, I can't remember exactly what they are, but four atomical principles, physical principles that combine to mean you can't have two things in the exact same space at once. Right. Um, Which, which is why a ghost, which is why you can't move through a wall. Which is why you can't walk through a wall, exactly. Because right. you can't be in the same space as that wall. Um, and the reason you don't fall through the ground is because there's not, even though the vast majority of an atom is empty, right? So an atom, they, like you can picture it as like a marble at the middle of a football field. And then flying around the edge of the football field is a single mosquito and that's like the electrons right mm -hmm. so it's mostly empty space but that empty space isn't quite empty it's really got a lot of electromagnetic forces acting within it so the electromagnetic forces acting within the pieces of those atoms and acting between atoms is what prevents us from just falling through the earth right because our at our foot atoms and the earth atoms are full of empty space but that empty space um, is full of <laughs> forces. I'm sorry that 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 language is not super. Uh, no, it makes sense clear to me. But it's like also those forces repel and attract other atoms. So it's not. Yeah. It's not just that the empty space is already full of something which is a force and not a physical thing. It's that the space itself has properties that prevent the falling. Right. Correct. That is a much better way of explaining explaining it. So there's there's not a presence. It's not filled with forces, though forces of fluid. The forces are acting in a way that causes that space to always remain empty. Right. Um, and, and for the atoms to not be able to fly through each other. Right. Um, so in order to walk through a wall as a ghost, you would have to experience a moment or a series of moments in which simultaneously the ghost is material enough to act upon the floor, walk on it, mm -hmm. and immaterial enough to pass through the wall. Right. Which to me is like, well, duh, because the ghost is both material and immaterial, just like the one of the most lauded physics determinations of all time which we've already talked about schrodinger's cat right so it's like i don't understand where physics is going with that because it's like you've already proved through several thousand experiments all along this one principle that you adhere to this idea of the superposition of two quantum possibilities being not only possible but true at right. all times so it's like yeah the Ghost is both material and immaterial, you dinkwads. But uh oh, we had our first dinkwad. <laughs> yeah, I'm hitting the dinkwad button. Well, it's interesting <laughs> to think about what the book that I was reading in the first half, where he mm -hmm. says, "Who knows? Like, 
a hundred years from now, it's crazy to think that the people who in, in 2000, I think what he says is in 2003, it's insane to think that our grandchildren will be, our great grandchildren will be using the same precepts of science that we use in 1903. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the scale of scientific discovery between then and now, I'm inclined to agree with him. Not that eugenics is good or that spiritualism is real. (laughs) Right, right. But that, um, the rate at which scientific discovery happens leaves a lot of room for curiosity and possibility that cannot be definitively answered with no, it does not and cannot exist. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Put a pin in that because that will be our denouement. (laughs) Actually, I shouldn't say it will be the tying of the knots because it's more like it'll be the unraveling of me. (laughs) Um, um, So so if you if you think of something that can be both material and immaterial and you're thinking using the principles of these laws of physics and, and these models, so the standard model of physics, which is the model of the atom Mm -hmm. that we and the the particles of an atom that we whatever that that was handed down to us as true um and in these laws one of them the most common one that a person might know e equals mc squared right Mm -hmm. so gus pop quiz what are the variables in e equals mc squared well e is energy Mm -hmm. m is matter Mass? Mm-hmm. Mass? Um, C is constant? What's C? It is a constant. The constant in question is the speed of light. Mm. So, um, so it's actually great that you said matter at first because that's one of the very common misconceptions about e equals mc squared and the difference between matter and mass right so basically what it says is that there is some manager manner in which you can mathematically so therefore physically remember our fourth level of parallel universe theory there's a way that you can mathematically and therefore physically convert energy to mass but when people misunderstand that as convert energy to matter or matter to energy, that's when ghosts start to feel really, really real in the world of physical laws, right? Because it's like, well, if you can convert matter to energy, then what are we talking about? Of course, something could be both material and immaterial, right? but it's mass, not matter. Um, and those are different because they're different and <laughs> matter is a physical thing and mass it has to do with the um the force that something is feeling of gravity right that you described earlier so that's why energy and mass can be converted using the speed of light something just fell on my desk that's why energy and mass can be converted is because they both express um an interaction of forces um and like a property of matter not matter itself right So then there's an unfortunate thing that's true about physics, which is that you'll notice that the speed of light, as we all know, is um, large. It's a large number. Mm -hmm. Um, And anytime you square anything, that's how you get exponentials, right? So something is – so that means the energy potential of mass is exponentially and then times something else 
more than the like mass value, right? Mm-hmm. So if you um, if you wanted to say, okay, I know you can't convert matter to energy, but you can convert mass to energy. And mass is a quality that ghosts have. They have mass, right? They have atoms in them. If you believe that they have atoms in them and you're trying to, and you're Nick on Ghost Adventures and you're trying to argue with the Huffington Post and you're like, right. So Ghosts have atoms in them. They fit into science. They fit into physics. And the way that they do that is converting their mass into energy. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the mass of a ghost who had this, let's, if you imagine that a ghost has the same mass of a person, mm-hmm. which I don't know why they would, but okay. Converting that amount of mass into energy, I think this is in the link that I sent you, would be the equivalent of detonating over 100,000 nuclear bombs. Right. So every time a ghost phased through anything, it would destroy the world. A thousand it would times destroy over. the entire world. Yeah. Exactly. Ten times over. Right. So it would the, the unit that they used um, to describe this was the kilojoules of the effect of the blast at Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. But I don't right. really think that's appropriate to talk about. So let's just like imagine an atomic bomb. Um, I thought that was so garish. <laughs> I was like, I mean, that is like, the about. you know, the great modern memory of the atomic bomb that's so you true. know i understand what it, it allows people to understand in their imagination how much it, people have a hard time understanding the degree to which nuclear energy happens and affects the that's world that's true i think it, con- it conjures a real severe image that's a good point so but it's extremely grim and sad <laughs> yeah so that uh, over a hundred thousand times if you had a the mass of an average person being converted to energy instantly in the sense of phasing right so that's essentially what was up until the up until the hadron collider that was the physics that said ghosts can't possibly exist right but you might i'm sure that you can tell from where i'm going and also from who you are as a person that like just because a ghost doesn't exist doesn't mean that it doesn't exist right like just- there's no reason that the ghosts would intrinsically have to figure into the model of physics that we've developed just because science is not able to explain them does not mean that they do not exist it may mean that we have inadequate tools for understanding or describing totally so so to me it's like okay so what that says is that a ghost is not converting mass of atoms into energy when it appears or disappears it doesn't mean that 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 a ghost couldn't ever appear or disappear it means that it's not converting mass to energy right. so that's a good point somebody worked that out they figured out how much energy that would be the mass of a person and it would be too much mass to convert to energy in that manner i have no issue with that math <laughs> right i mean it's like saying there, there's a logical fallacy within it within the idea that because it does not, because this specific, like you, when you say, well, a ghost could not be doing these things as per the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. I I can say with certainty that because the laws of physics, this exact thing is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like when a, a ghost moves through a wall, it's not converting matter to energy. That cannot be taken as larger proof that a ghost cannot or does not exist, that only proves that what you just said is what's not happening. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to summarize it. Like, 
if the only way you can imagine a ghost existing is that it must be made of mass and that it must be converting its mass to energy, you've proved that that does not happen. Right. If the only way you can imagine a ghost existing is that it's made of a mass of atoms. Then that's okay, but you're not a paranormalist. You're right. a physicist. Right. You're already in the wrong genre. I mean, it's like we were talking about that last week, and I want to—I don't want to linger for too long on this because we've talked about it at great length. But the fact of something not being scientifically provable according to one specific theory does not negate the fact that thing may exist in nature, because science is constantly taking and revising its theories based on new evidence and data. I think the hard thing about ghosts is that there is. We'll do another episode about proof, ghost proof, mm-hmm. in the material way, not in the theoretical way. Because right now, the, this arc has been about theoretical proof of ghosts according to scientific precepts. Mm-hmm. In another arc, we'll talk about how people try and capture images of ghosts and how people try and prove mm-hmm. it in the field experientially. Mm-hmm. But I think that... We'll just put a pin in that and returning to that. But that... <laughs> That and the physics may not coexist harmoniously on a theoretical level, but that doesn't mean that those things cannot both happen. Does that make sense? Totally. It makes total sense. Now let's talk about this guy you hate. Yeah. So so that brings us to, to the contemporary moment where now you have – well, I'll, let me talk about the infinite dick hole cage, and then I'll do my little cultural summary because I, I do want to look critically at the paranormal perspective as well in, in a cultural sense um, and sort of summarize the cultural moment that paranormalists are currently facing. There is a man. <laughs> he goes by the name of Brian Cox. No comment. He's a professor of physics at Manchester University, and he is one of the leading minds of science in the world currently Um, in both accolades and celebrity. He's a public intellectual. He's a public intellectual. Thank you. That's exactly what he is. He's a public intellectual um, at Prof Brian Cox on Twitter (laughs) and uh, (laughs) hashtag vigilant bitty. and and he said recently, I can't remember what year it was. It could have been 2017 or it could have been 2019, but it, it was recent in the last five years. That there is no such thing as that there is no physical quality of ghosts because the Hadron Collider would have found it by now. And thus There are no ghosts. So he said that because the Hadron or Hadron, I believe it's Hadron, the Hadron Collider, um, what it does is it spews atoms and atomic particles at one another. That's why they call it a collider. And they just like smashes them together. Yes, it smashes them together. And they experience these atoms experience and these pieces experience every possible physical interaction between atoms and atomic particles theoretically. So the more you do it, the more information you get. And so Professor Cox says that there has not been an observed particle reaction that could explain the physics of 
like the physical particle nature of ghosts and thus that the work of the Hadron Collider has proved that ghosts do not exist. And he was asked to confirm that verbally in that moment by another famous, another public intellectual who shall not be named. And he confirmed that that is what he meant. So he didn't say it accidentally. He said it very deliberately. And more than that, he said it very snidely. So this is the moment we find ourselves in. First of all, we find the same logical fallacy there that we found with the last thing that we just talked about, which is this idea of the known unknowns that physics talks about a lot and Professor Cox talks about a lot, which is that everything that we don't know, we know that we don't know it. There's a scope of what's unknown, and that's known, thanks to the Hadron Collider and, and the Hubble Telescope and a few other instruments. I don't think I need to explain why that's stupid. Would you like to? But if I had to, I would say... That that's either a very poor way of expressing something else that you mean or you are wrong because it can't possibly be that there's a scope of unknown things and you know exactly what that scope is. And you're just still working on identifying exactly what's going on with the things that you know you don't know. I think to clarify why that seems wrong to me is to me, that is a hubristic understanding of the scope of potential knowledge. And right. it implies that there is no, I mean, in a way it's related to this larger sort of hysterical sense that we have in our age that we are reaching kind of what they call the end yeah. of history. That's mm-hmm. a more political science history term, but and not about science, but that, with the end of the exploration of the new world, the dying of the age of discovery, moving into the Anthropocene, that we have reached an age in which human knowledge has reached everything that it could possibly reach. And that we're just, we're just taking our thumb and erasing the last few incorrect variables and changing them. But we're, we pretty much mm-hmm. know all there is. There is as many people as there's ever going to be. The population's at an all time high. You we've know, hit the edge of the map. We've hit the edge of the map and that, Now all we have to do is just work out the last few details. That is, to me, at best, naive, Mm -hmm. and at worst, extremely, extremely self-centered. And dangerous, I think, at worst. Because... The fact of the matter is the potential for... Well, one, it underestimates the non-human world on a on a massive scale. I mean, hello, we haven't even explored like 90% of the ocean. You're going to tell me you know all the particles? And, F-O-H. And also, look, I mean, I'm very close with my grandmother and she has um, in her apartment a piece of art that was made when she was in school. And it is the periodic table of elements. That shit is like half the size it is now. Mm-hmm. The degree to which our understanding of what we now consider to be obviously accepted science has expanded in between the first, in between the Victorian era that we discussed earlier and what we're talking about now is massive. 
And the idea that that level of discovery or understanding will never happen again, that we've somehow in a hundred years closed the gap and that now everything we've learned is what we're going to learn. And now all we have to do is learn the most esoteric professionalized weapons technology or whatever, and that that's all that there is left. It just seems baldly on its face untrue. Right. For the listeners at home, I'm making a hello gesture. <laughs> yeah, it just it just feels like, like you said, it's underestimating the potential of the unknown. I mean, we just talked about exponentials. Is there no way that you could imagine that what you believe to be unknown turns out to be exponentially larger than what you thought it was? Or that the things that, or even to me, what seems more likely is that the things that you learn in that unknown space loop back around and make the things you know untrue. To me, that seems right. like the nature of science. You have right. a working model, and what you're trying to do is prove that, I mean, theoretically, you're supposed to be trying to prove that the model's not true, but a lot of the time, I think, in practice, in terms of the professionalization of science and the need to be right, exactly, you're trying to prove that things with fit within that theory and make new discoveries yeah. within that theory. And then you find one thing that pulls that whole thing apart and you have to put it back together again. I don't understand yeah. this idea that human beings are somehow inherently capable of understanding everything about the physical world. That to me seems arrogant and it's up the pursuit of that is a bad thing. It's just that it doesn't seem like to me, that that has there's a level to which that also is manifest destiny. I mean, not exactly, totally. but like that that idea that human beings there is a fixed and definitive point of understanding in the horizon that we will reach where we know everything. To me, is so naive. Why would we do? Why would that be the case? Why would that be the case? Why would it be that? I mean, oh, it, I it's, it's. I mean it. The mind boggles. The, the mind, mind boggles. I can't even understand how much I can't possibly understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, yeah, like you said, like, it just feels like a new manifest destiny. I mean, and so that brings us to this moment, this cultural moment where the physical perspective is confirmational bias. It's, I mean, so the supernatural perspective has confirmation, whatever, Blech. Um. The, the the physical perspective is is this sort of like sneering confidence that either they know everything or they know what they will know and they know that it's not ghosts. And then on the paranormal side, it's this heavily experientially focused and, and sort of like and also these moments of like trying to sort of grasp onto the vines of physics and and like, oh, but, you know, what if mass can be converted to energy like E equals MC squared? And then it's like, no, that would be 100,000 explosions. And then it's like, well, where where does the energy go when you die? And it's like fungus, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like it, yeah. it, these this this terrible sort of mudslide of, yeah. of paranormalism clinging to to these physical definitions that that I agree can't serve the paranormal. I agree that the physical capability the capabilities of physics do not cover the under, like the paranormal. I agree and and it's hard to watch paranormalists fellow paranormalists cling to that. It's like it's like third wave feminism of 
paranormalists. Like, it's terrible. It's hard to watch. It's an attempt to achieve a legitimacy that is obviously on its face not coming. Right. Like a scientific and, and, and legitimacy. Is, and, and is no form of, yeah, it's legitimacy with a capital L. It's, it's no form of innate and true legitimacy. Like, right. it's no legitimate form of legitimacy. I mean, it's it's the Oscars of what is true. Like, hello? Yeah. It's also interesting to think, like, in the Victorian period, looking back, I spoke a little bit about, I didn't speak about this during the Victorian era. When I was talking about um, the people that we were discussing, <laughs> the scientists that we were talking about, mm-hmm. there is this sort of distanced perspective that we look back on reading these texts where people hypothesize, like, well, this was a time of great religious anxiety among the Victorians and, like, mm-hmm. the rise of secularism and the coming apart of the church. And, like, I mean, that is, we are living that tenfold the mm-hmm. rise, and this is something that people on the right is in the American right say a lot about the left. So I don't want to devolve into kind of wanton political scrabbling because mm-hmm. I don't mean this in that way. But the idea that science takes the place of religion in secular culture as a form of unquestionable truth and worship. While I don't think that's entirely true, and again, I know that there are many religious scientists who believe their beliefs are completely compatible, and in fact, some of the great scientists and scientific historians I've known in my life have been extremely religious, I also think that in a broader sense of mass culture and the dissemination of mass culture and the dissemination of mass ideas, science takes on a truth-telling role that it was never previously expected to hold. And so the people giving out scientific theories who are entrusted with scientific knowledge are also being given a level of cultural knowledge and cultural truth-telling that is extremely modern Mm -hmm. and difficult to grapple with when you get to questions like supernatural, afterlife, these sort of what used to be considered theological questions, though, of course, they've always been interrogated along scientific and logical lines. I think there was formerly this thing of the church, at least in America and before that in England, Italy, you know, France, what we consider to be the West, where that was the body which would disseminate truth about the afterlife, ghosts, knowledge, you know, these things that were considered Mm -hmm. the domain of God and the domain of religious life. And so for that to enter into science in a secular society poses kind of a challenge to even our ability to talk about it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's amazing how Absolutely. much of modern paranormalism does revolve around science and how immediately the conversation jumps to that. When to me, ghost stories are so incredibly personal and so incredibly emotional and emotionally moving when you talk to people about the ghosts they've seen they're never trying to prove it to you it's only when it is a, i mean sometimes they are never physics never using physics they try to prove it to you using their own personal emotional logic right but it's so rare that you know anyway exactly mm-hmm. what you said and i think that it's just bespeaks a larger anxiety about the place of the afterlife religion and science in our lives that we 
have to have these conversations on a scale of truth, untruth, mm-hmm. and specifically scientific a truth, scientific untruth. Scale. Yeah. When to me that seems like one piece of what is obviously an important part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more. It's more than what is true. It's what is real. Right. Exactly. And ghosts are real. Exactly. It's more. That's more than truth. That's more than legitimacy. That's more than physics to me. Um. Yeah, and and now the new so the new ghost thing in in response to that is is um talking about antimatter and dark matter just mm-hmm. really quickly I'll summarize that so neutrinos that that I yeah. sent you that neutrinos are a particle that have been discovered that can move through other like solid matter and mass um right. without like hundreds of thousands of them move through us every second without us feeling them in any way mm-hmm. so that's the new thing that paranormalists are are interested in and 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 I don't and they call it the ghost particle, actually. And even physicists call it that, um, which another, a discussion for another time. But I don't necessarily believe that that is the particle that comprises ghosts physically. But I just, you know, want to point out that it's another thing that can't be explained. Well, that there are continued developments that yes. continue to put into question what we think of as the current yes. science. The, yes. The idea of the known unknown it's got its own holes mm-hmm. and there's no reason to think that those are ghost size holes. I just don't believe that. I don't even know. There's so much to say and, and yet it's so, it feels so, so simple in some ways. And, and I, I can see that like, that's, I guess a bias of the way that I approach the world and what I hold to be true and real is that when I hear things like what Brian Cox says, I, I just immediately know that that's not, an answer to what I'm looking for. Right. So it feels so simple, but there's so many layers of it, of, of this desire to have these things line up, this desire to have these things be opposing. So I guess look up neutrino fields and antimatter <laughs> just as a little food for thought. It's, it's, it's really interesting, even though it's probably not a ghost-shaped hole. I think the core of this to me is that the position I think of this podcast, at least my position, and I think what I'm hearing from you is your position, is that you can believe that modern physics does not explain ghosts or prove that ghosts exist and still believe that ghosts are real. Mm-hmm. You can accept, you know, it it requires you to be able to hold multiple concepts, but you can believe that we don't have an explanation and that and yet that things are still real. And, and that we never oh sorry. No, go ahead. And that we never will, or we may never, like you said, like that, those holes in our knowledge, they're not a ghost shaped hole, or they're not necessarily a ghost shaped hole. I mean, it may not happen in our lifetimes. Think about how many Mm -hmm. people went through their lives never knowing of disease or what caused them cells, atoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many generations of people who understood intuitively on some level that being in the room, being in a room with a sick person could get you sick, but they couldn't Mm -hmm. explain to you germs Right. How many times have we reset our entire physical model? I mean, right. Ethers. We talked about ethers. We talked about vapor a little bit. We'll talk about vapors and uh, what's yeah. the other one? Like the fluid sacs that they yeah, used to dude. Flu- You know, like, like, well, I mean, and humors. And to acknowledge that is also to acknowledge that there will always be scam artists who are trying to make money off of 
being able yes. to alert you to something that you may know to be true but can't be proved. There are always going to be people who will tell you they can contact your dead girlfriend mm-hmm. and hold your hand and read from, you know, her text messages. I mean, that is also an instinct in human society and shouldn't be discounted. Mm-hmm. And I don't I think it's fine to debunk those people. There's nothing wrong with that. I agree. And like all of these things can coexist within the human imagination. What I guess what I'm trying to emphasize is that they always have. Yes. These conflicting impulses exist within human culture and your ability to take a side within them places you in part of a grand larger tradition, even though you may not think of yourself, you may think of yourself as right Right. or wrong in that moment. And of course that's how we all think of ourselves is think that our views are the correct views, but you are part of a much larger, uh, much larger tapestry of podcasting an ancient tapestry of podcasting of hot girls saying crazy shit in a microphone of blonde girls being like ghosts are real thank you so much for listening we love you we love you so much have a fun afternoon I found out this week because I never got around to paying the last of my tuition and doing my financial aid exit counseling until like literally this week. Um, but I found out this week. Um, I don't that believe I, in interviews. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in graduating.